I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books, Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers. Welcome. It's good to have you listening. As the 2024 campaign for president accelerates, you're going to hear renewed debate about health care. And here's a few reasons why. Even as a record number of Americans are enrolled in the Affordable Care Act, more than 750,000 Americans signed up in one day in mid-December, the leading Republican candidate for president, former President Donald Trump, is telling voters he still wants to repeal and replace it. But for the purposes of our conversation today, the ACA is only the beginning. Dr. Sandro Galea is a physician, epidemiologist, and dean of Boston University School of Public Health. His new book is a prescription for modern public health that meets the needs of a diverse, often unhealthy, too often underserved population with courage and candor. Dr. Galea writes... Public health has first and foremost a responsibility to advance a unifying vision of health based on the reality of our connections to each other while meeting the practical demands of the moment. Yes, that's a mouthful, and we'll take it apart in the course of our conversation. We're also going to talk about what COVID revealed about public health and why Dr. Galea believes, quote, a pragmatic, moderate paternalism is a way to a responsive public health system. Dr. Galea's new book is titled Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberal Time. He joins us today from Los Angeles. Dr. Welcome, it's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. As noted, uh, more than 40 million Americans now have health insurance through the ACA, whether that's through state marketplaces or the federal government portals. It seems like the ACA met this practical demand of the moment that you write about. And I wondered, since the debate is surely going to grow louder this year, what your assessment is today of the way the ACA is working? I think objective observer would conclude that the ACA filled a really important need in this country and that in many respects, it achieved its goals. Obviously, the ultimate goal is to make sure that everybody has access to healthcare when they need it. And we're not quite there, but we have moved quite a bit further along those along the path to getting there. There was a lot of opposition to the ACA, much of it, of course, political, much of it not particularly well-informed. But fundamentally, it created a new pathway for people to get access to healthcare, and it has achieved that goal. So I, I, I would consider the ACA really one of the sentinel health policy triumphs of the past uh, many decades. It sounds as if you're saying this is necessary, it's the beginning. Where does it fall short? Well, I think it uh, falls short in in that uh, we have not completely succeeded in having everybody having access to healthcare. I mean, we have long been behind other high-income countries in uh, the proportion of people who actually have health insurance. And that's a reflection of the very fractured system of health insurance coverage that we have, and that locks out a lot of people simply because they don't have access to employers or through Medicaid or Medicare and other devices like that. So the ACA really completes the picture by providing other pathways. Now, it still ultimately depends on Uh, individuals who to sign up and it depends on states doing their part. So our system with its many different disconnected pieces continues to create barriers for 
people in signing up. And I think that's where ultimately we fall short. I'm, I'm reluctant to say it, meaning the ACA falls short, because I think the ACA is what it is. It is it is an imperfect bill in that it doesn't impose a blanket health insurance access for everybody, because that's not the system we have. But I think for what it is, I think the ACA has been a terrific success. What, what do you think when you look at, let's say, a large state like Texas, which did not accept the the Medicare expansion money and so did not give statewide access to people who did not have health insurance? I mean, what what happens for the millions of people who need health insurance that live in a state like that? Is there is there a remedy if you are low income living in Texas and don't have health insurance? Yeah, there there's good science that shows that states that have not accepted expansion money do more poorly on a number of health indicators because people in those states do not have access to the same healthcare services that people who do have health insurance have. So these states, Texas being one of them, for political reasons, have chosen to not create this pathway for health insurance for their citizens and their citizens suffer as a result. It is unfortunate. That's really a pity that something as fundamental as access to health insurance in our country, in our system, sort of becomes a subject of partisan jockeying. In, uh, you, you asked a question about what uh, recourse people have. Obviously, there are mm-hmm. any number of recourses, whether they have health insurance through employers, whether they're actually eligible for Medicaid, whether they're over a certain age eligible for Medicare, and, and of course, whether they seek emergency care when needed. I mean, those are all, that's the patchwork of approaches that people take to getting healthcare. But what ends up, what ends up not happening is people being connected to regular care, to, to a regular provider, to being connected to the system, to get vaccination on time, to get preventive care on time, to get care that they need that's non-urgent. And of course, that then becomes poorer health. And more costly, right, for taxpayers in Texas, which I'm not sure everyone quite understands. If you're showing up at the ER, it's going to cost more to treat that person, isn't it? There's, There's no question that preventing disease saves us as a society money. And to prevent disease, we need everybody to be connected to a provider. I mean, the data are very clear on this, that having a regular provider for your care, for example, is the primary driver of whether you get preventive care and really can keep you healthy. The more healthier people are, the the more cost beneficial it is for us collectively. So ironically, often the arguments that have been used by the states that have rejected expansion money is to say, well, it's costing money, but it really is not. And in the big scheme of things, it's actually saving money. So there is a there is a partisan recasting of what is factual here. I quoted you in the introduction as writing that public health has a responsibility to advance a unifying vision of health based on the reality of our connections to each other. We're going to take that apart. First, I'd like to know what what your description is or your vision is of a unified vision of health. What's it look like? Well, you know, the term public health, I feel, is sometimes misunderstood because it suggests strictly a system of surveillance for infectious disease, clean water, restaurant inspections. It is all of that. But fundamentally, 
public health is about a healthy public or a healthy population. What public health is about is about creating a world which generates our health. So the vision is that we together agree on the parameters of what it is we want to do to create that world. Let me use, let me use a simple example. We agree that we are collectively healthier if we all stop at stop signs. I'm using a trivial example, obviously, but I think everybody will understand that. You know, mm-hmm. all of us, you know, anybody listening will know the number of times that you come to a stop sign. There really is not there anybody around. You're looking around, but you stop. You stop at a stop sign. It is a collective agreement that that makes us healthier together. And that's an example of how we build a healthier world. Now, of course, I can delve from that. We, we collectively make sure that we have nutritious food, that we have a clean air, that we have drinkable water, that we have safe neighborhoods, that we have parks when we can exercise. These are all elements of how we build a world which makes us healthy. And it is that that we really aspire to. Like At the end of the day, you and I don't want to spend too much time in healthcare at our doctor's office. We would rather just live our lives and use our doctor, use healthcare only when we need it. What we want is the investment in a world that keeps us healthy for as long as possible. And that is what should be the goal of public health. So I'm going to take your example of the stop sign and apply it to something that I think is also inarguable. I think we all agree that smoking cigarettes causes cancer. Now, not everybody is going to get cancer from smoking cigarettes, but the data and the research is undeniable. When you apply something like that to healthcare, I think we get a sense of how much more complicated this is because you're talking about human behavior and having to account for that in this idea of a unified vision. Does my example work or not? No, it works on many, many levels. So let's talk about it sort of step by step. Let's start with First of all, the data, we should just be very clear, the data are unequivocal that smoking cigarettes increases your risk of cancer tremendously. As you said, the the key here is increase your risk. It doesn't mean if you smoke, you're going to get cancer, but if you smoke, you're much more likely to get cancer. Now, accepting that, then we as a society say, okay, we recognize this risk. The risk is cigarettes. So what do we do about it as a society? Now, you can imagine a world where we say, this is not a risk we want to take. So we are going to just ban cigarettes altogether. Now, we have the public conversation. Now, I'm aware of the limits in the public conversation, but let's accept for a second that we have a public conversation. And what we have said as a country is we're not going to ban cigarettes. Now, we're going to do certain things to make cigarettes less accessible. We're going to limit them to people over a certain age. We're going to create warning labels. We're going to tax them heavily. But ultimately, we are going to accept the fact that some people will want to take this risk, and we as a society accept that some people will want to bear a risk. Now, we move down to individuals. So individuals then make their own choices. Now, we want to make sure that individuals are educated about their choices. And again, some individuals will want to take the risk and some will not. As a society, we are constantly making that balance. We are constantly balancing what risks we are willing to tolerate, what risks we are willing to accept and what risks we're not willing to accept. Let me use let me use another example. Use cigarettes. I'll go back to my, I was using the stop signs as an example mm-hmm. earlier. Speed limits. You know, speed limits are a perfect illustration of, of our societal risk tolerance. So mm-hmm. we know 
that if you drive at 55 miles per hour, you have something like twice the risk of dying if you're in a car accident than if you drive at, say, 25 miles per hour. But, of course, we have speed limits of 55 miles per hour all over the country. Now, we know these data. We're aware of these data. But we balance the pros and cons. We balance other inputs that we also value, not just reducing risk for health, but also, in the case of speed limits, the value of being able to get from point A to point B faster. To go to cigarettes, perhaps the value that some people enjoy smoking cigarettes. And and we we have that debate, we have that discussion in our society, and we draw lines about risks that we're willing to tolerate and risks we're not willing to tolerate. And I think, as I hope anybody listening to this conversation will recognize, it's not so clear, right, where that line should be drawn. It's not always mm-hmm. so clear. And also that line that line shifts over time, right? We shift that line. Like for example, today everybody essentially wears a seatbelt. I mean, anybody who's listening who has children knows that you get in the car and if you forget to put on your seatbelt quickly, your your young, your child, because they hear it in school, will say to you, Daddy, put on your seatbelt, right? So we have evolved a slightly. But 50 years ago, we did not wear seatbelts. So our line of the risks we're willing to tolerate and not shifts. And, and that is how it should be. You know, I'm listening to your examples and I'm thinking the the dilemma, and we saw this during COVID and we're going to talk about that, but the dilemma is, as you say, the line moves and the, I think the discussion, the national maybe discussion and recognition of what the common good looks like as you take in individualism, um, well, you know, that's, that's, it's difficult because I don't think those national discussions uh you know, are on a trajectory where we're just using data and good common sense. Politics comes in this sense of, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I mean, that's the frustrating part of uh, a common health, a public health that we all contribute to and we all pay for in different ways when there's so much fracturing, I think, of the way people perceive what that common good is. Does that make sense? It does, it does. And I think we can, uh, you know, you quoted something which I wrote and you said, no, that, that has a lot of meaning, so let's take it apart. Now, I think you've said something which has a lot of meaning, so let's take that apart for a second. <laughs> that was a mouthful, so there, there, what there, I there, just there, said too. No, no, no. It's, it's, I mean, you said a lot of things actually I think are really interesting. So let's start with one element of it. One element of what you said is, well, Sandra, it's nice and good to say we're having this, pub, this public conversation, but the truth is, <laughs> That that conversation is often not happening on a level playing field yes, because there are there are, the there are for example there are for example corporate interests that try mm-hmm. to sway the conversation mm-hmm. because if you're manufacturing a product let's say cigarettes that is harmful to health you have an interest in the public conversation saying no no we enjoy cigarette smoking there are political interests which say that look if I can rile up my political base by saying you don't want the ACA to go back to the example you started with because it is somehow I use this you know, very carefully, quote, socialist, and then people rally behind you, even though it's harming health. So there are these forces, which I would consider to be not good faith actors in the public conversation. So we have to recognize that, that we as a country need to make as much of an effort as possible to ensure that we have the space for an honest conversation about the risks and the benefits of particular approaches. So that's part A of what you said. Now let's go to part B. Part B is how we balance various inputs. And I think we have to be careful that 
your inputs, Kerry, and my, you know, your values and my values may not be exactly the same. Now, actually, probably your inputs and my inputs are actually quite similar because we're actually having this conversation on American public media, et cetera. But there are many people who are actually quite different than us. And I think we need to be careful that we give space for different values in society to make sure that we don't rush to decisions that close off people's options just because one particular party happens to be in power versus not another. And, and this has relevance to COVID, of course, which we'll get to in a second. But mm-hmm. let's extend sort of a, let's extend the, the conversation we're having with the metaphors perhaps around cars for a, for a second. So we recognize as a society that riding a motorcycle and getting into an accident if you're not wearing a helmet is is really quite dangerous. So we impose helmet wearing in a motorcycle, right? And we say, look, we recognize that some people there might like the feeling of the wind in their hair, but really as a society, we find this risk intolerable. So you have to wear a helmet in your motorbike. That's fine. But if you think about it, we also know that if you wear a helmet every time you get into your car, if you're going to get in a car accident, you're also going to be held. You're also going to have less chance of being injured, right? But mm-hmm. we don't mandate a helmet for every time you get into your car. Now, even though we know it is going to reduce our risk, we say, you know what? That's a risk we're willing to tolerate. So we are balancing other values that are not just health. And in the case of, you know, why don't you wear a helmet in your car? I guess it's convenience and you don't want to mess up your hair. And I realize that sounds trivial, but I'm, 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 trying, to, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to force us to realize that we are balancing different values. And as I said earlier, I don't think that's such a bad thing. I actually think that's all right. And I think the mistake we make is to, can be twofold. Number one is when we think that everybody has the same values we do. When we think, you know, for, I can say to you, you know what, for me, I, I think we should just ban cigarettes tomorrow because I don't get a particular pleasure of smoking a cigarette. But there are many out there who say, actually, it does give me pleasure. And, and, and the, the, the fact that I have autonomy to choose that if I want to is very important to me. And I think it's important that I listen to that and I listen to that set of values. So that's number one. Uh, number two is the the very simple point that health is not a value in and of itself. Like we don't live to be healthy. We want to be healthy so we can live. And I think it's a mistake we need to be careful not to make because neither you nor I want to live in a human zoo. You know, Neither you and I want to be in a setting where we are so well cared for, but we don't have the freedom and the autonomy to do certain things that give us joy. And I think sometimes... That's a mistake that we make. I think sometimes when we get upset and say, ah, you know, the, the, the country's not doing the right thing on policy decisions. We, if only we did that, we would just promote health. But I think we need to think carefully about what are we giving up? And as I said, we are willing to give up a lot of things for things that threaten our health. For example, we're willing to give up riding on a motorbike with the wind in your hair. We say, no, you need to wear a helmet. We're willing to give that up. But there are other things that we're not willing to give up. And it is on us collectively to figure out what the wisdom is, where that line is as to what we're willing to give up and what we're not. Good. Now we're getting to the heart of the book, but let me remind listeners what they're listening to. If you've just joined us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Sandro Galea. He's a physician epidemiologist and dean of Boston University School of Public Health. He's out with a new book that raises a lot of really interesting questions. You can hear our conversation is pretty wide-ranging. The title is called Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberal Time. And I think, Dr. Glea, this is a really good moment to take what you just said about this idea that 
we have to live in balance. And I think you use the phrase, we have to give space for other values. You watched, and, and I assume participated as an epidemiologist, the pandemic unfold. And you believe that it was public health's finest moment, yet it was also a demonstration of public health's turn toward illiberalism. Do I have that right? You do. Tell me why. Well, let's start with the finest moment. The finest moment was, you know, COVID was a tragedy. About 1.1 million Americans died in COVID. About seven and a half million people died around the world. And there are a lot of knock-on effects from it. But COVID would have been much worse were it not for the work of public health, were it not for the rapid development of vaccines at really record pace. Like we develop vaccines much faster than we ever had, like by three times much faster than we ever had as a society. We figured out ways to deliver those vaccines, make sure that by the end of 2021, almost everybody had received one dose of COVID vaccine. We developed testing. We developed systems for testing, identifying cases, contact tracing, isolation where needed. All of that happened in a really rapid period of time with a new disease that nobody had heard of until really the beginning of 2020. And a lot of people in public health did extraordinary good work that contributed to the country doing much better than it otherwise could have. So I think that is public health's finest moment. And I think we, anybody who's in public health can take a step back and with pride say, we did well. We did, we did what was our responsibility to do. So that's the first part. Now, the second part is the turn toward the liberalism. And, and, and to, to explain that, I think one has to remember the moment within which COVID hit. So COVID hit in the spring of 2020. It was the run-up to, it was the beginning of a U.S. federal election. And the president, at the time President Trump, essentially took an approach that COVID was an inconvenience towards his path for re-election. And alternately took a belligerent approach to sort of bordering on denialism, promoting treatments that were ultimately quack treatments, doubting the need for vaccination in a, in a very inconsistent way. And I think when you have the person who occupies that office with really the most powerful bullhorn in the world taking that position, it made public health defensive. I think it pushed us into a corner where we felt a need to counter that with strength, with certitude about what we were doing. And my assessment is that that approach, that the certitude that we were pushed into outstripped actually how certain the data were, and it outstripped our clarity of thought in terms of the different values that people had that who we wanted to bring along. So as a result, public health made it clear that only certain approaches were considered to be acceptable. And those were the approaches that, that centered and elevated above all else, limiting the, the transmission of the virus without thinking too much about the other consequences that we also should have been thinking about. And we can talk about many examples of that, but let me stop there. Okay, because there's a lot to say about this. And I want to take up the defense in some ways of public health um, and this idea of certainty. You know, I hosted many, many call-in conversations through the pandemic. I was surprised how many people 
would call in because they were disconcerted when public health officials would say that they didn't have all the answers, they were trying to crunch the data quickly, the conditions were changing, you know, this virus was new. I My perception was that public health officials were often responding to the public's demand for certainty and and some direction of what to do now in a you know in a landscape that was changing often you know every 3 or 4 days i think it's a really interesting observation that you're making and, and i to be completely candid i'm not sure i i think that the public can handle uncertainty i think we mm have trained people to want certainty. And if you think about a clinical analogy for a second, clinical medicine, you know, as, as you said in your introduction, I was initially a doctor before I became an epidemiologist and worked in public health. Clinical medicine, 20 years ago, when I went to medical school, just 30 years ago, we used to be taught the patient just wants certainty. Just tell the patient that you know the answer and the patient will be happier. Today, we don't teach medical students that. We teach medical students to be honest with the patient. I'm using this the, the term patient because I'm talking about the clinical setting. Be mm-hmm. honest about what we know, what we don't know. Be honest that there is a best recommendation, even though there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think public health is in the same transition, that the notion that people need to be told things with certainty, even if we're not certain, I think is 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 a false idea because I think it leads us down a path then when the data change and we change our recommendation and quote we change our mind, even though it's entirely reasonable because the data are changing, people say, but wait a second, just yesterday you told me with certainty right. that this was the case. Right. And so so I think it is a mistake to communicate certitude where we don't have it. Even though even though people may say, I want certitude, I think people can handle us saying, look, the data are as follows. Based on the data, our best advice today is the following. But I will get back to you tomorrow if the data change. So what what I saw was a misunderstanding that science builds on itself. You get this research and you get this observation. And that if scientists come out or epidemiologist, or Dr. Fauci come out one day and say, we think everybody should disinfect surfaces because we don't know if this virus can be transmitted through, you know, multiple people touching a surface. And then they come back in, I don't know, a month later and say, what we now believe is that it's, it's most transmissible, you know, when you're talking with someone or hugging someone or something. What I think people see that as is kind of a betrayal, not a, well, I understand this is how it works. And now there's been observation and more research, and we're building on the knowledge. You think people say, oh, I understand how this works, and I'm not upset that a month ago you told me, we don't know, but this is what we think. Well, I I suppose... I have two approaches to that. Number one is if if the public is expecting certainty in a time of rapidly evolving data, then I think we need to do a better job of educating the public that that is not how facts, data, and insight work. And I think if mm-hmm. we haven't done that, it is on us to make sure that we educate the public that 
as data change, our inference changes, our recommendations change. That's number one. Number two. Okay, let, let, hold on. Let, let me stop you there, though, Dr. Glea. Do you believe that the public, I, I think you're saying you do believe that the public is educated to understand that? I, I, I think the public is understands that much more than we think. I think the public okay. understands that much more than we think. And, you know, of course, this is ultimately an empirical question, although it's actually quite difficult to get to it. But I think the public understands it much, much more than we think. And I, I don't think that we give the public a chance to, by explaining uncertainty and bringing them along on the journey of discovery. Mm-hmm. Okay. And number two, I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and number two is is um, that there's science, in particularly in psychology, that shows that actually, um, you know, this is experimentally done in trials, that when you communicate uncertainty, the public does not lose confidence in the communicator. In fact, the public is either neutral or gains a little bit of confidence in the communicator. So there are psychological experiments that show that when you say, look, here's what I think you should do, but I have this band of uncertainty around it that people respect that and get more confidence in the person saying it. Now, you know, all of this, I mean, we're discussing it, obviously, theoretically, we're discussing it post-COVID. And and I I never want to lose sight of the fact that a lot of things happened during COVID that happened quickly with a lot of people trying to do the best they could. So this is not a backward-looking conversation. It's more of a learning from the past so we can actually do better in the future. But the what I think, what, what troubles me in the present is this. We just went through something which, as I said, and I think I'm right on this, this was public health finest hour, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it was public health finest hour, but when you look at the data on trust in science, trust in health, trust that, and Pew has done some excellent work on this saying, you know, your likelihood of, of believing that doctors are acting in the best interest of society and all that, those numbers are down by about 25%. Mm-hmm. After having gone through this event, that was our finest hour. And I think that should make us pause and say, why is that? If actually, if objectively we did well, meaning that we saved lives, literally millions of lives, shouldn't we be in a place where we're riding high, where the public says, you know, hurrah for public health? But that's not the place we're at. And I think that should make us say, why is that? Like, what is it that happened that people perceived as not being favorable? Why are people now doubting public health? And to my mind, one of the elements of that is that our communication was such that it did not give people what they wanted. And that, of course, sows doubt. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to miss something that you wrote about. You thought that you believe that public health edicts were, quote, infantilizing adults and, quote, infringing on their dignity. I suspect you have something specific in mind with that. Yeah, we can talk We can talk about multiple examples. I mean, let's talk, for example, about keeping people away from their loved ones who are dying. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, know, you know, what is more, what is more of a, of a denial of our dignity when we cannot give a kiss, a hug, a farewell to a loved one who's dying. Now, why did that happen? Now, it happened because our attention was focused on one thing and one thing alone, which is making sure that we reduce transmission of the virus, right? But at the end of the day, for those who wanted to be with their loved ones, 
that mattered more to them than reducing transmission of the virus. And that perspective was one that deserved airing. That perspective was one that needed space in the public conversation. And insofar as we did not give the perspective space, then I think we were not seeing the different values that people have that we should keep in mind as we're thinking about the decisions that we make in public health. I'll use another example also referring to people at the end of life, and I use this in the book. It was our decisions for many people who were in in care homes to restrict them, for example, to their rooms, depending on various protocols about who tested positive and who didn't, and really effectively imprisoning people, many of them elderly people, in their rooms. And now we did that because we were trying to minimize transmission of the virus. And we should be clear, actually people over 65 are much more likely to have serious consequences of COVID. So there's plenty of reason from the perspective of reducing transmission and, and quote, saving people's lives to do that. But we did not engage in the conversation that says, what were we giving up? And what were we doing mm-hmm. to the mental health of people who are over 80, who are, who are trapped in their rooms? And I, I'm not trying to suggest that there is there was a clear answer. And I want to be very careful not to be misunderstood. And, and I tried very hard in the book, and hopefully, Carrie, when you read the book, you, you, you got that from the book, not to, not to judge decisions that were made in the heat of a difficult moment, but to say, how do we learn from this? And preserving people's autonomy, people's dignity, should be central to what I call in the book a liberal perspective. And future decisions we should make by recognizing that we value much more than just not getting disease, that we actually value being with our loved ones at their last moments, that those who are over 75, over 80, living in care homes, value freedom in their last years of life. And that is reasonable. That's not unreasonable. And in our decision-making, that should be taken into account. You know, it ties in well to the trivial examples we were using earlier. Remember earlier using the example about, you know, we think it's it's okay to say that you may want the wind in your hair on your motorbike, but we actually think that's not reasonable. And that's fine. It's a societal decision. But we don't impose other things based on what we judge as reasonable. So, you know, the book is called Within Reason, specifically to push us to have the conversation about what's reasonable. And and I, I, I want to be clear, I don't have a... <laughs> I don't have a list. I don't have a manual of what's reasonable. In fact, no one of us should, right? It's not, and, and what's reasonable changes and shifts over time. So I want to be very clear about right. that. What I'm encouraging us to do is to have the conversation in the forefront of our mind at all time, in a time of crisis as well as not in a time of crisis, to get in the habit of mind collectively as a, as a society to discuss, is this reasonable? Let's weigh the pros and cons. Let's weigh the trade-offs of a particular restriction. Now, I want to say for listeners, there is no tone of scolding or, as, you, as you've said, judgment in the book. But I, I, I take a situation like you've just described where a loved one is dying in a hospital. There's a lot of risk for allowing, not just to the, the, the loved one's families, but to the healthcare attendants who are... I, I, I guess I'm just asking, what would a policy in the next pandemic that takes into account what you've written and what you saw unfold in a situation like that? I I wonder, well, what does that 
sound like? Just much more clarity about what your risks are and you are as an individual or as a family taking those risks? Yeah, I, I think, well, actually, Carrie, I think you actually answered your, your own question. I think that's exactly what it would look like. And, and let's think about mechanically, you know, let's, you, you and I are sort of blue skying here together, because of course, who knows what the parameters of an next pandemic will be. But one can imagine, for example, saying, look, you want to see your loved one, there's a risk you're going to get a virus and what we don't want you going out and transmitting in society. So let's explain this to you. And you and your family can be with your loved one who's dying. And then there is a compact that you are then going to isolate in your house for the next 10 days, you know, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So we create the spaces where we educate people about the pros and cons and try to balance the individual autonomy, the the, uh, need for individual decision-making about individuals' dignity with the societal needs. And, you know, I appreciate you saying that I really tried hard not to have a tone of scolding or, you know, in the book, because the book is predicated on deep respect for public health and a deep admiration for the people in public health who did a lot of difficult things in a difficult moment. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to learn from what happened and say, let's look ahead. You know, let's take another example. We've been talking about about death and dying, but let's take the example of keeping schools open. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw it today. There was just a, a fairly high-profile report that came out that confirmed what I think broadly now experts in the field all agree that essentially kids fell behind, particularly kids from low-income neighborhoods, low-income schools, about six months in schooling, which they're never going to recover, right? That is a tremendous loss. That is a, a, a educational loss, a social developmental loss, which means we have a generation now that is bearing a real loss. Now, if we think about it for a second, that generation was young. There were children in 2020, 2021, right? Children were always at lower risk of getting COVID. If they got COVID, they were at lower risk of having serious COVID, and they were also at lower risk of transmitting it to adults, right? So this group, children, that really were not that affected by the pandemic in terms of from point of view of at least virus transmission and them getting sick from it, are Mm -hmm. going to bear a cost throughout the rest of their life for it. Now, why is that? Well, it's largely because of our shift to remote schooling, which a lot of kids could actually not do, particularly kids in low-income schools, and our worry, right? I mean, why did we do that? Well, because we worried that if kids were in school, they would get COVID, they would transmit it to us adults. But if, if one thinks about it from a certain perspective, we were imposing on these children restrictions that cost them because we were protecting us, the adults. And I suppose I'm asking us, was that reasonable? Was that reasonable imposition? Or should we have taken the approach that we as a society owe it to the next generation to do everything we can to keep our kids in school, to make sure that our kids' learning that doesn't suffer because they are the future. And 30 years from now, 40 years from now, they should have had the privilege of the best possible education, even in difficult circumstances. And, and that is a question that I think is, I think it's a reasonable question for a society mm-hmm. to ask. And I don't, remember hearing that question it was sort of at the margins of the more central discussion about how much we were willing to restrict schools because of worry about viral transmission so i'm trying to bring in different inputs different values you know you quoted you you quoted something which i wrote at the very beginning of our conversation and i talked about bringing into the conversation the full set of values and i think that's what i mean by it it's it is a 
you know, I may say what's what's occupying my risk space right now. I'm I'm terrified of getting the virus, and therefore, look, I'm fine closing schools because I want to do everything I can just to minimize my chance of of getting of getting the virus. But somebody else might dispassionately say, well, actually. I care about the next generation perhaps more than, and I'm willing to downweight my own risk. And I think mm-hmm. it's those different values that we should bring into the mix and have a conversation about. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books, Bold Ideas. And my conversation is with Dr. Sandro Galea. He's an epidemiologist, dean of Boston University's School of Public Health. And we're talking about the ideas that propel his new book titled Within Reason a liberal public health for an illiberal time. We, you know what we haven't done yet, Dr. Glea, is define what you mean by liberal and illiberal, because I don't want listeners to believe that we're talking about the political versions of those words. Yes. So would you take just a minute and, and define that? Yeah, thank you, Carrie. I actually appreciate that we're defining it. Yeah, and, and in the book, I'm very clear, and I, I think it's important that, that the listeners understand that. I don't mean liberal in a leftist sense. I don't mean Democrat. I mean liberal in the enlightenment sense of the word liberal. So, you know, liberal thinking essentially means a way of looking at the world that prizes reason based on data, not based on ideology, but based on empiricism that leads to reforming society a step at a time, that prizes individual autonomy, that says that we do everything we do as a society to make sure that individuals can reach their full potential and live full lives with dignity. That's what liberalism Actually, there are elements of liberalism on both the left and the right of the political spectrum. What we tend to call libertarianism, which in this country typically tends to fall on the right, is has these elements which elevates the individual autonomy and dignity part of the definition. And on the left, we tend efforts to create social safety nets, which are in the part of building and reforming society so that people can can flourish within it. So we actually have elements of liberalism on both the left and the right of the political spectrum. But I use the term liberalism because I want us to think about how do we create a public health that embodies those values. And my argument in the book, and I make this point in the book, public health actually is the paradigmatic liberal project. And what I mean by that is that modern public health is actually based on just these very principles. Modern public health is based on the principles of empirically observing the world, measuring the world, understanding what it is that generates health, and slowly implementing reforms that do so, so that people can be healthy, as we started talking earlier in the conversation. So it's not a stretch for public health to be liberal. Public health's illiberalism in the context of COVID, which which in our conversation I've been clear to say, was in in my assessment anyway, in no small part in reaction to other illiberal forces in the political space, is something which I'm hoping we can learn from to reclaim our liberal roots. So it's in that context that I'm using the word liberal. You have a chapter uh, that you call The Case Against Moralism in Public Health, which I think fits quite well with what we were talking about before we gave those definitions. And you write about how engagement with America's racial history is critical to public health's mission. And yet, I have to say, the impression I got from that chapter was that you question whether diversity programs are part of the solution. So I, I was hoping you'd parse that out. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm sort of glad you're, you're, you're alighting on some of the hardest parts of the book. Um, um, 
I, uh, I actually think that, uh, I want to be clear, I do think diversity programs are part of the solution. What I don't think is that they're the only solution. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it is a perfect example of where when we're not thinking comprehensively, we end up, we end up becoming ideological and promoting simple solutions that are too reductive, that do not deal with really complex issues. And you, you tend to see this right now in some of the current public conversation, for example, around DEI programs in universities. Mm-hmm. And, and I've written about right. this in other places, and anybody can Google it and can find my writing on it. And I've been very clear that I actually think that DEI programs are critical to building a community, an intellectual community that is representative of all people, that brings a diversity of ideas and perspectives, and that allows us to do better work. What I don't think is the case is that any one thing is going to be a solution to a complex issue that has centuries of history. And I suppose that's the line I draw between ideology and careful thought based on empiric observation. Is any one program, I mean, there's there's science that's evolving now that every once in a while you see a paper being published that says, we assessed this particular program, it didn't make any difference. And my answer is, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that one particular program doesn't because when you have complex problems, why should anyone ever think that any one simple solution is going to solve everything? Right? And I think that's the difference between ideology and reason thought based on empiricism and an effort to reform society gradually. You know, when we think about when we're looking for simple solutions, it puts us in the mindset that we think we're going to solve things quickly tomorrow. And it puts us in the mindset that then I think creates space for for overly paternalistic efforts that people react to negatively. So part of my premise in the book, and this, you reflected this in your in the quote you started with, is pragmatism. That public health needs to be pragmatic enough to recognize that complex problems, which is what we're dealing with, require complex solutions, and those complex solutions need to bring people along. You know, I come back to the um, point I made earlier, why this lack of trust and the work of health in the context of, in the aftermath of something where health did so well. And I would argue that part of the reason, again, it's a complex set of questions, so there's no single reason, is that the public did not sense that we were pragmatic and engaging those with different values, that we imposed particular solutions, thinking that they were a one-size-fits-all solution, when in fact, reasonable people, smart people, thoughtful people realize that's only a partial answer. I suppose all of this, right, all of this rolls up into difficult problems, require reasoned, careful thought, requires Mm. a plurality of voices and requires a respect for those plurality of voices that's the way to both maintain trust and to achieve societal improvements that stand the test of time what i appreciate about the book and i think you've alluded to this is that you have you watched and participated in in seeing the pandemic unfold you've taken a an analytical look at what happened and what, where the healthcare system and all its complexity is today. And you've stepped back to say the next time, and then everything we've talked about in this hour, 
What I wonder about, and I've been thinking about this with the element of race, there was a big conversation during the pandemic about making sure that healthcare resources and treatment and vaccines were getting to people who lived in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods, that people who were low income were getting access to health care. And we know from the, the numbers that that was not always the case. What I'm wondering is whether you believe we've basically gone back to business as usual. And I see you prodding this in the book, but I wonder what, what kind of ignites more interest in that so that the next time it doesn't happen just the way it, it has all along. Yeah, when, when, when I'm asked about hope and what gives me hope in the aftermath of a tragedy like the pandemic, one of the things that gives me hope is, is that I do think, slash maybe hope, that these, these challenges that were always there before the pandemic, for example, the enormous gaps in health and healthcare access between groups of socioeconomic status and race in this country, were surfaced in the pandemic such that we can no longer ignore them. So I am hopeful that these are part of our conversation. And I'm hopeful that these issues are part of our conversation in a more sophisticated way than simply saying that we should provide healthcare access. You know, let's talk about racial differences in the pandemic for a second. And I reflected on, on quite a bit of this in my earlier book, which was called The Contagion Next Time, which came out a couple of years ago. But just to use one example, because I think the, the listeners to this might, uh, might resonate with this. You know, when a pandemic hit, it was a it was a virus, right? Transmitted person to person. So the, we said, "Why we?" I mean, public health broadly. Everybody who can work from home stay home, right? Mm -hmm. And at some level, that's intuitive. But data from before the pandemic was very clear that if you were in the top twenty five percent of income in this country, about sixty plus percent of people in that bracket could work from home. If you were anywhere in the lower seventy five percent of income, only a minority of people actually who worked could work from home. And that group is disproportionately people of color. So when we actually say a pandemic hits, you work from home, what we're effectively saying is those with more income are going to be able to protect yourself from risk more than those with lower income. And those with lower income are disproportionately people of color. And which is, of course, what happened. Because if you look at the deaths in the first year of the pandemic, it was disproportionately people who worked in essential jobs. And warehouses and in, uh, sanitation. And, in, and those were the jobs where people actually were more likely to then contract the virus. So, you know, I'm challenging us to say, this is a difficult question. It's a difficult question. And if we're serious about rectifying inequities in health, we need to next time ask the really difficult question, is really encouraging everybody to work from home knowing that by doing so, we're going to disadvantage a large proportion of the population who is already disadvantaged, the right approach. And, you know, I'm not offering a solution. And I think it'll take us another hour to discuss the pros and cons of different solutions to that. But it certainly is something that we should have discussed. Dr. Sandra Galea's new book is titled Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberal Time. Dr. Galea, thank you. Thanks for a good conversation. Carrie, thank you. Thank you for reading and thank you for engaging.